0: This message comes from Apple Card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA member FDIC.
1: Terms apply. I think it began to take 10, 12, 14 years before I became really fluent, I felt. Uncomfortable. So that when I saw a vision or something, I had a creative idea that I had the skills to carry out that idea.
2: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from DesignObserver.com. On this podcast, Debbie talks with photographer Albert Watson about the importance of preparing conceptually for a shoot.
1: You have to have a plan. That's what's important, and that's preparation.
2: Here's Debbie, first with some words about our sponsors, and then with the interview, which was conducted live from inside an Airstream trailer at Adobe Max in Los Angeles.
0: I'd like to thank two of the patrons that help make Design Matters possible. Is your team designing an app from scratch? Rethinking the look and feel of your brand? Maybe taking on something massive, like transforming your brand's entire customer journey? Well, don't do it the old way passing numberless one-off comps through endless emails. Instead, do it all in one place. Do it in Adobe XD. Now, for free, with the new starter plan. Adobe XD combines the ability to both design, prototype, and share in a single solution. Its combination of creativity and productivity lets your teams eliminate bottlenecks and simplify workflows. They can now create an interactive prototype and then share it with teammates and reviewers in a single place. It keeps up with today's creative demands by letting your team work when and where they want across Windows, iOS, the web, and more. Adobe XD has helped big brands change the way they create and review prototypes at a large scale. So don't do it the old way. Use Adobe XD, the design platform for the future, available today for free. For more information, visit xd.adobe.com today. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? Albert Watson first came to fame in 1970 and has become one of the world's most successful and prolific photographers. He has photographed every supermodel of the past three decades, Orkney's standing stones, Chairman Mao's limo, the most iconic photograph of Steve Jobs ever taken, the first monkey in space, death row convicts in Louisiana, a dominatrix in Las Vegas, the astronauts of Apollo 14, Elvis Presley's gold lame suit, and hundreds of artists, celebrities, royalty, and cultural leaders. Albert Watson, thank you for joining me for this very special live episode of Design Matters here at Adobe Max in Los Angeles, California. Happy to be here. Albert, is it true that before you took up the photographic arts, you worked
1: at Duncan's Chocolate Factory in Scotland? Uh, I did. I actually started out as a mathematician. And I worked at the Ministry of Defence in London, strangely enough. And I was operating a very kind of primitive computer, as you can imagine, back, uh, that would be in 1960. The c- computer was pretty, pretty rough, you know. It was about the size of this uh, Airstream here. <laughs> yes. And uh, so I operated that for a year. And then I went, that was in London, then I went back to Edinburgh, where I'm from, and I got a job in Duncan's Chocolate Factory testing, testing and tasting chocolates. So uh, I I did a lot of chemistry work because I was basically interested in mathematics and uh, chemistry were the two things I was primarily interested in at At, that time. At that time, did you want to become a mathematician? Um, I did. And in fact, I was going to go... I'd always planned to go back to university. And I actually, by going to night school, I gained entrance to go to Edinburgh University and study mathematics. But also I got into... St Andrews University, which was the Duncan of Jordanston College of Art in in Dundee, and uh, I ended up having a choice. So in 1962, I could either have gone into mathematics or gone into what I wanted to do was art. And in Dundee, between 62 and 64, I studied uh, basically many different types of art. It was a general art program and uh, the idea of that was to find out what you were drawn towards or what you would be good at and so on. And uh, after two years of doing everything from painting, drawing, pottery, silversmithing and so on, I gravitated towards uh, graphic design. So in 1962 to 64, then I, I trained to become a graphic designer. But in 1963, for the first time ever, they offered a photography class. And, of course, by the first month of 1963, I, I became really uh, pretty much obsessed by photography. I just knew for some reason that it was, I just wanted to do it all the time, every minute of the day and night. So, uh, in, by 1964, I qualified as a graphic designer, uh, but I had a, what was called a craft subject in, in photography.
0: Now, I want to talk a little bit about your parents. Your mother was a hairdresser, and your dad was a former professional boxer. That is correct. What influence did they
1: have on you as you were growing up? I, I think you know, it was a fairly normal upbringing. I had two sisters, uh, but I think possibly my father was kind of an old-school disciplinarian. So he was the kind of guy that if you if you went in to use our bathroom, make sure you fold the towels before, you know, and make sure that the toilet seat is always down.
0: Oh, good for him. So, uh, <laughs> he,
1: you know, he, because just in case a lady comes in after to use it, the toilet seat's down, you know. So uh, it was a nice kind of discipline thing that I hated at the time, but later in life appreciated. Uh, because I, I would consider that I have fairly good discipline and with fairly good discipline but then over the years developing a a deep passion for photography those things came in handy.
0: Now I understand that your father always hoped you'd get a proper job what
1: proper job would he have
0: liked you to have?
1: Well I I think the first time he saw me doing what strangely enough the first thing he ever saw me photograph um, was a fashion shooting and he saw me kind of running in there and adjusting the clothes on this girl and um, just making sure that the hair was okay and uh, checking the lighting and then running in and doing the clothes and uh, fixing a strap and a shoe. And, and then as I went back to the camera, he said, uh, funny work for a man, this, isn't it? So he was uh, he, he was a little bit, uh, you might say, prejudiced about that. And, uh, when did he come around? He came around, I, I think, you know, he didn't come around for years. That was, let's say... Because I I moved to L.A., uh, I I went down to London, and between 66 and 69, I was at the Royal College of Art Film School. So I then entered the film world. And uh, if you look at the work right now, you'll see that it's really a combination of graphics and film together. Absolutely. That's where it all came from. And uh, then 1970, I moved to to L.A. And uh, in 1972, he actually visited me in L.A., And um, he he still thought it was a bit odd what I was doing. But he was impressed that I had a studio and a house by that time, you know. So he thought, well, he must be doing all right. You know, I I don't have to send him any money or anything. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so there was no, you you know, basically uh, I was doing fairly okay. But he was never impressed until 1986. And in 1986, I got a call from the Queen to go and do the royal wedding. You know, I was commissioned by the Buckingham Palace to do the royal wedding in 86 of Andrew and Fergie. And uh, then he was impressed by that. You know, probably one of the simplest jobs I've ever done. Stressful, but simple. What made it simple? Uh, it's Simple because basically they're standing there and you take the picture. So you're not, you don't have time. Um, there were basically 11 situations that I had to photograph. The first one involved 61 people. In in the throne room in Buckingham Palace. So is that the whole immediate family? Everybody, everybody that was a cousin, second, third cousin. Oh, okay, so the extent. And it was quite complicated because at that time, Fergie's mother uh, was living with an Argentinian polo player. So she was separated from Fergie's father and was, was, as I said, living with this polo player. Scandal. And at that time, in 1986, which you probably remember, Uh, or not, uh, that Britain was still at war with Argentina. So the Queen couldn't be in the same picture as the Argentinian. So we then had to rearrange the whole group. So anyway, there were 11 situations. The first one was 61 people, and then it was like 49, and then 47, and all the way down to a single shot of Fergie. Uh, So all of that had to be done in 30 minutes. I had this uh, alarm that went off every five minutes, a little buzzer. So I knew that it was one, and I counted three... I knew that was fifteen minutes and so on, and uh, so it was. It was a bit of a nightmare that way, stressful. Uh, but we got it done. And uh, one roll of film per situation. That was it. Twelve frames, you know, per situation.
0: As one of the most accomplished photographers alive today, it might surprise some to learn that you were born without vision in your right eye, which is also why you titled uh, a book of your work Cyclops, and that is also the name of your company. Yes. Um, An article I read from about 10 years ago said that the vision in your left eye is actually 20-20, but you wear glasses to protect it from hazards because you're down to just one One eye.
1: Um, But it looks like you're wearing bifocals now, so I'm wondering... No, I'm wearing bifocals because a lot of times uh, when I'm working and if I'm in a dark room working with negatives or even sometimes when I'm working on a computer screen and I have to go close, I use a bifocal. Uh, to just, it, it's just more comfortable for me. And uh, I don't use it that often. Um, and uh, when I'm on a plane, I don't really need them uh, if I have good light on, the, on a book. Uh, so, uh, But the one eye, a lot of time people ask me about that. I say, oh my God, a photographer with one eye. But if you think about it, and you watch a lot of photographers working, if they're working with Canons or Nikons and a lot of different cameras, when they look through the camera, they only use one eye. They're not using two eyes to look through a Nikon or a Canon or a Hasselblad. So, uh, nowadays, of course, photographers are working off of a screen anyway. You know, they... they They might frame through a camera, but you're checking it on a monitor next year that can be quite big, you know. So, uh, times have changed for that. But it it never really bothered me. And if I don't think about my vision, then it seems normal to me. If I concentrate on my vision, I'm very aware that I don't have sight on the right side, you know. I I, I can feel that, you know. Uh, But somehow it didn't bother me.
0: You talked about the revelation that you felt when you first took that first picture and that sense of wanting to do it over and over and over again. Sure. I, I believe that that came when your wife bought you a Fuji automatic fixed lens camera for your 21st birthday. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. And um, it was, you know, we didn't have two pennies really to rub together. And she had saved up for that. I think that we, we had... Uh, Kind of a three egg three egg omelette between four people for a for a, a while, and um, so she bought this little camera. I think that was like I think thirty dollars or something like that. Uh, but I used it, and uh, it became really. I, I learned to use it, maximize what it was capable of, and uh, of course it was great. It was great to have my own camera. Otherwise, you were only getting a camera from the school every third weekend, so it was pretty limited, you know
0: you <laughs> When it came to picking up the art of photography, you've said that you were old school and felt a responsibility to learn the technical side of the craft, which was painful for you. Um, and your advice to young photographers today is get the technical thing out of the way and become so fluent in it that there is no stress. And you've likened it to mastering driving. It's yes. overwhelming at first, but with all the gauges and gears. Um, but once you've learned it, it's muscle memory and you can focus on your destination. Um, so I have two questions. Why was it painful at first?
1: Uh, because I'm not really a technical person. I'm not somebody that uh, is, is really going to go to camera shops and go through all the latest equipment and uh, and test out the latest programs or the latest software in digital world uh, and so on. And in fact, um, I actually got very good, to speak about something technical, I actually got very good with Photoshop. Uh, because uh, when I was doing Photoshop, I found myself operating Photoshop at about 5 miles an hour. And when I then began employing a a really good technician who could go at 80 miles an hour, then I found the most efficient way for me was to truly understand Photoshop and what it was possible of, but to have those people working with me in-house. The thing that didn't work for me, that a lot of photographers still do, is they send their work out. To a digital house, and the digital house does some work on it, sends it back, he makes a correction, sends it back. It just didn't work for me at all. Uh, to me, it was very important to be on the equipment with these very good technicians. So I sit between two technicians going from a left screen to a right screen. It's highly productive. Uh, now I'm totally aware because I see them, you know, eight, nine, ten hours a day operating Photoshop right in front of me. So I'm seeing what it's possible of and uh, therefore working with them is is a great way of me sort of through their 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 ability to, to control the image uh, because i'm primarily interested which i always have been interested in is printing obviously in the first years of my life uh, i was interested in darkroom so what you would call silver gelatin printing and uh, so i was used to traditional darkroom and it gave me a great advantage with that knowledge moving into digital. So I was able to apply a lot of the philosophy of printmaking right into the digital world and into Photoshop. Uh, So the Photoshop became very good. But going back to the camera and your original question regarding uh, technical things, um, I didn't enjoy it. Some, you know, unfortunately, kind of photography attracts a lot of, especially guys who love cameras. Uh, they, they just love the equipment. They, they love changing lenses and and, and and getting all the latest equipment, software. I mean, I have a dentist who has every Leica camera ever made. You know, he's, he's obsessed by it. He loves it. Um, he said he can't wait to finish at 6 o'clock every night, and he goes home and he works on his photos for seven hours when he gets home.
0: I kind of love that you have a, pho- a dentist who's also a photographer. I've also a photographer. Well, he's obsessed.
1: And then of course, when he... <laughs> Of course, when my my mouth is full of cotton wool and he's trying to ask me questions about photography, you know, uh, it's not so easy to communicate with him. (laughs) Uh, But he really is, he loves the equipment and he does enjoy taking pictures. It's not fair of me to say that he's, you know, 100% technical and never takes a picture. Uh, But the technical side, he has a love of that. Whereas... I find a lot of the technical things a little bit annoying, but some of it, as, as you said, pointed out earlier, you have to learn it. You should have a knowledge of that so that you know what's going on.
0: Given that you've been working through so many different phases of technical requirements or technical advancements, how long did it take you to feel like you've mastered each phase of the technical skills of your
1: craft? Well, I, I think it, it, it took at least remember I had a lot of training first but from the you you get training at school but then you hit reality you're no longer just trial and error you're you have to be doing the real thing you, you can't fake it anymore you can't say oh I'll, I'll try it again tomorrow I mean you have to have to do it on the day and get it right uh, but I think in the beginning, and I've given this analogy quite a lot, I think in the beginning I would do a shot on a Monday that I would say is equivalent to the Sistine Chapel, and then on Tuesday I would look at the contact sheet and think that it wasn't as good as I remembered it, and then on Wednesday you throw it out. So (laughs) the idea was how do I manage to break this down, to not let that happen. But I think it began to take 10, 12, 14 years before I became really fluent, I felt uncomfortable so is it when I saw a vision of something I had a creative idea that I had the skills to carry out that idea but I'm always learning even to this day I'm always there's always I'm always ready for a surprise something that doesn't work
0: so you like the act
1: of learning then of course you're always learning there's always something new that you that comes along that you you want to try and you find it difficult and and you have to you have to, to learn to, to master it, you know, because that's what you're meant to be so-called, especially at my age anyway, you're meant to be a master of photography. So you better learn a lot of that stuff. But the, the technical stuff has to be a means to the end, not something on its own, you know, because sometimes you you get a photographer that's completely fluent. You see the way that he handles uh, his camera and the way he handles equipment is very quick and fluent and natural. Uh, and, and sometimes I see that, but then uh, I've had assistants that were technically very, very strong, very good, very proficient. And uh, I, I remember one assistant going away and said he was going to He'd saved up enough money to work on his portfolio for six months. So after six months he asked, Can I bring it you know, can I bring in some pictures? And, and and let you you know, for me to have a look at them. And then he called up and I made an appointment with him at the end of the day, like at 6 o'clock or something. And I was actually looking forward to seeing them, you know. And when he brought the pictures in, they were I mean they were pretty horrendous. Mm-hmm. You know they weren't great. I, I and I wanted them to be great. You understand? I yeah. wanted them to be wow. That's fabulous. You did a good job here. So of course you're always positive. Someone who's trying to to do good work. But um, that I, I think I, I said briefly. I touched on it today at the talk. That I think a lot of photographers. For them, you say to them, "Are you prepared for the shooting?" And they say, "Oh yes, I've checked all my lenses. My batteries are good. I've got my tripod. I've got the cables. I've got this, that, and the next thing." And preparation to them is that. Now, that should be almost a non-discussion for yeah, preparation. It's stable stakes, and, right? In other words, it's absolutely necessary. Uh, you, you can imagine that if. You know, if early on in your life, if your father's taking you on holiday and you got everything's packed and everybody's ready to go and you're off, ready off, and the car won't start because there's no gas in it, then it, at that point you, you go, "That's ridiculous," you know. So I think that uh, there's quite a lot of photographers that preparation means technical, and that they're technically prepared for the shooting, but then. Conceptually, they're very weak at preparing that. And I was, what's the idea? I mean, I, I, I was hanging a show once at a museum in Sweden, and there was a, a photographer waiting to photograph me. And I said, I'm going to be about two hours. He said, that's fine. He was watching me hang all these pictures. And then eventually, after two hours, I said, OK, I'm ready. Where do you want me? Because he's the photographer. And he said, you know, he said, I've been thinking about it. but I'm not quite sure yet. So, I mean, meanwhile, you had all this work around you. That I had pictures from every part of the planet. And he just, and, and, he, and then he turned to me and he said, what do you think? Now, I know it's, it's always a little bit intimidating. If you're a young photographer, you're photographing an older photographer that's been doing it for a long time. But in, in, two, in two minutes, in two seconds, I, I, I made some suggestions. And he said, oh, I love that. That's great. But he should have been prepared. He should have, I know that he was just looking at the pictures, not thinking. And I think that's uh, a major problem with photographers, that they're they're not thinking about uh, communication. I mean, I had an interesting exchange with Steve Jobs where uh, I had really one thing prepared for him that I thought about. And I thought it was something that he would respond to and like and it would be easy for him to do. And I, I said to him, he said, what do you want me to do? Because a lot of time people, that's what they say. What, what do you want me to do? And I said, well, I'd like you to give a fairly strong eye contact. And I said, I want you to imagine you're across a table from a lot of people that disagree with you. Uh, but you know you're right. And he just, of course, he smiled. And he said, oh, I said, that's easy. He said, that's every day for me. And and then I did that shot of Steve Jobs. And, and it was just really coming from the preparation of that one line. And you look at that line and sometimes you say to young photographer, the young photographer might say, well, it's not kind of a brilliant Shakespeare line. I said, no, but it was really right on the money. Uh, because when you see him, he responded to that. And he gave that ice-cold look with a tiny smile. And you just, you you felt that he was a bit of a killer, you know? And, uh, which he was, you know? So uh, that, sometimes it can be that simple. one, one line you know
0: but you have to know an awful lot to be able to come up with that one line i did it on
1: steve jobs i I, the the steve jobs book wasn't out but every single damn thing that i could get on steve jobs i read so i knew that if i was communicating with him and chatting with him about life in general which you do sometimes that i was prepared and i knew all about him everything about him i mean i knew everything at that point about apple and how it started and what they did and the different people involved and so on, et cetera, et cetera. And I knew a lot of things. I mean, Pixar films, I knew I mean, I knew. I mean,
0: this is this is in the days before Wikipedia as well. So how would you sure. find out well, all it was, this it was on the edge. In uh,
1: 2006, I did that shot. Okay. So I think Wiki was there. But I just, I got every book and every article that I did. I went to a library and picked up that stuff when I knew I was photographing him. So. And
0: when you're with, with Steve Jobs, I think you had 30 minutes, with other artists or other subjects. Um, do you have multiple scenes where you ask them to think about something specific well, it, it or is it just that I'm one? what I'm doing. I mean if you
1: think of like uh, the movie poster for Kill Bill with uh, with Uma Thurman, uh, you know, which is in the yellow jumpsuit and I spent a day with her because we had to do movie posters for all of the world. So the Japanese one was completely different. There she was dressed as the, as the bride, if you remember that yes. part of Bill, Kill Bill. And uh, so she was wearing all these different costumes, but they were pretty sure that the one that they wanted uh, was the jumpsuit, the yellow jumpsuit. And, of course, I did some action shots and they asked me what I liked. And I said, I, to me, the best shot is that she's not in action uh, and that she's cool and, and kind of ice cold. And in the end, that's the shot they actually used. I, I thought they would go for one of the... You know, when she, she has the legs apart and she has that sword. And she was very good with the sword because she'd done a lot of work with it. And uh, so you you basically... You know, someone said, well, we, you, you have to do action. And I'm fine with that because it was that was the nature of Kill Bill. Uh, but I, I, I thought that a, a simple portrait of her, that I would be able to get something quite cool... And, and maybe even a tiny bit sinister in, in it with, with, with great simplicity, you know? Well,
0: there does seem to be layers of emotionality to your greatest photos, where you see different aspects all at the same time. Yeah,
1: a lot of it is is timing when you're shooting the person. You have to be really watching what they're doing. And I, I always preferred, you, you know once I got out of the 1970s and then into the 80s when I really began to work very heavily uh, and, and sometimes a lot of editors and magazines complained that my work was getting too heavy, too strong, you know.
0: What does that mean?
1: Well, you know, especially in, in fashion photography, sometimes if there's a lightness to the pictures and a little bit of frivolity and so on, a lot of times editors quite like that and I was doing quite a lot of pictures that were quite heavy and quite dark in a way and a bit moody and it was what I liked at the time and uh, you know I'd get into quite a few fights about stylistically and then they would keep bringing up pictures that I did before that were much lighter and happier and so on. Um, But I mean that change for me was going to be a natural change when the pictures became for sure I agree with them heavier for me the pictures were stronger uh, but in some ways less appealing maybe to a mass audience. And it became more specialized. But these are the these are the shots that we sell now for thousands of dollars, so I, I'm, I'm glad I stuck with it.
0: You've said that the photographer's best weapon is not his lighting and not the camera's, it's his communication skills. How are you able to get a subject to open up and to feel comfortable and to trust you?
1: I think, in the end, I'm... I try to be, wherever possible, completely honest with the person and and very natural, you know. And I'm never tricking a person into something. I'm always very direct of of what I'm hoping to get and what I might get And, and I'm also You know, often when the person goes into hair and makeup, I'm in there watching them have their hair and makeup done. And sometimes they're communicating with a hairdresser, a makeup artist, and I can feel something, see something in their their openness. Uh, So I'm basically, from the minute they enter the studio, I try whatever possible to have them in front of me. You
0: are able to... Solicit multiple emotions at once from your subjects. Mm-hmm. I know that when you were shooting Renee Zellweger, you asked her to concentrate on two different emotions: on sure. being both angry and also in love. And and I'm wondering how do you how do you get somebody to be able to
1: do that? Well, sometimes you give a good actress. Of course, this, this is where actors are, of course, invaluable. I mean, I I I, I remember doing a. TV commercial with uh, Charlize Theron and uh, I explained to her she had to, it was a huge set I was working on with neon lights in the street with rain pouring down. It was inside an LA studio and there was rain, torrential rain and she ran across the street and she's got just her handbag on top of her head and uh, you kind of see there's a man with her opening the door for her and and closing the door and, and you don't, you don't kind of see the guy, but you know he's there. And um, it was for Jewelry, Italian company. And uh, I remember saying to her, she said, what do you want me to do? I said, well, imagine you just spent the weekend with this man and you're madly in love with him, but you're not going to see him for a month. So you spent the weekend with him, but you're not going to see him for a month. And I said, "You, you get into the car and you realize this is the moment that he's going to disappear from you. You don't see him. And at that point, in the rain running down the side of the car, she runs over the car, she gets in. She's slightly flustered and she puts her hand on the window and he puts his hand on the window, you know, from the other side. So the shop was fairly classic in a way. Um, but she puts her hand up first and she looks up from Where are you? And then his hand comes up and touches her fingers through the glass. And I remember explaining that she said she said I got it so I only explained it once sometimes you want to expand on it a little bit to give it a, she said no I got it Don't. she said don't worry about it I got it so I thought well we'll, we'll see I, just if you really if you have got it and I always remember that she did it the first take was perfect I thought she was going to cry when the guy was she was like and then just at the end she gave a little smile you know almost to say thank you you know sort of thing uh, and and so therefore, the, the communication with people and how you handle them is, is, is really is important. Uh, with, with Renee Zellweger, uh, when I was doing stuff say on Cold, I think it was the, the movie Cold Mountain I was working with her on, and uh, I, I said to her, uh, imagine you're in a restaurant and you have an 8.30 appointment with your boyfriend. And 8.30 arrives and he's not there, quarter to nine arrives. So by five to nine, you're furious, but you're also worried. Why is he not here? So you have a panic that he's not there, but you have anger. So when he comes through that door, you're, thank God he's here, but you're also furious, where was he at 8.30? And sometimes you can work with a good actress and you can pull that out of a good actress. You can really work with, with her where she, she's angry but she's so happy to see him that that, summer, that is maybe 60% of her emotion that he didn't, wasn't hurt in a car crash or something. And uh, now she's, the 40% is where the hell are you, why are you late sort of thing. So sometimes you can pull different things. And it doesn't take a lot of planning. You just have to have a, a plan. You have to have a plan. That's what's important, and that's preparation.
0: What do you think the audience sees when they see that Renee Zellweger photograph?
1: Um, I'm not so sure. I mean, it's just the way I like working, and I hope that, that, that they manage to... Uh, you know, I hope they manage to see some weight in the picture because I did that. Um, I, I, I did another tight movie poster... Uh, on Kate Blanchett uh, for the movie Veronica Guerin, the the Italian, excuse me, Irish, uh, Irish activist, and who was assassinated. And um, I... I read that you really like her face. Of course, I like her face because she's a great actress. And I like her face, but she's a great actress. I mean, there's just... She's just simply a great actress. I mean, she's just... And I said to her... And once again, they, they ask you, you say, what do you want me to do? I said, I said I'm just wondering, is there, is there any way... There are obviously times in the movie where your life is good and positive and so on, but you were you, you must know in the end that there, there's a great danger of what you're doing. And of course, she, she knew it was dangerous. The real Veronica Guerin knew it was dangerous. And then she was assassinated. And I said, it would be very good if you can somehow play on this idea that, that you're hopeful about things, that you feel you're a good journalist, a good writer, and that you're doing the correct thing in life. But, boy, are you worried about your own safety. And uh, if you ever find that shot, the Veronica Guren post, I'll have a look at that, and she did it beautifully. So, so sometimes people see all of that. But to me, sometimes what's important is that I actually go through that procedure. That I go through that in my head, and that I'm trying to deliver something for myself and a client. I'm trying to work to, so I'm not just there saying, "Okay, just be there," you know. Uh, you know, give me a little smile or something, you know. I'm trying to give them situation, uh, trying to pull something from them. Not
0: everyone is as accommodating. I understand Chuck Berry was quite rude. Well,
1: one of the big, one of the real big disappointments for me uh, was. Uh, you know, with Chuck Berry, because I was a gigantic fan from when I was very young of Chuck Berry. And uh, he was just basically a real jerk. I mean, what can I say? He's, he's gone now, so it's not good to speak ill of the dead. But um, but boy, he was just so rude and nasty. And the more I poured on niceness to, to quell that fire, you know, I was trying to, I was trying to put his anger out with with niceness and friends with kindness thing. And, 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 and so on and and so on and it just it just was never it was just almost going downhill it was even getting worse you know uh, so that was a big disappointment for me but he was he was actually the worst of all the people I, I, I mean I photographed I think we have a library of about 5,000 people Recognizable names of celebrities, and he's definitely at the bottom of the list. Unfortunately, why not his music? Yeah, not his no, music. No, but why? but uh, I mean, it makes you
0: wonder. It's why? Why be? That I think way? he was bitter,
1: uh, I, and I think that that bitter bitterness got into him. That he he felt that a lot of people, you know, maybe like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, etc., 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 were able to go in and make millions of dollars. Meanwhile, he was always struggling to make a dime, sort of thing. Uh, and uh, he was, you know, he was a he was a difficult character. So he was he was bitter. It's really the the word. So when he felt that he could be uh, nasty to someone that he felt was in some sort of power, like I had, I was photographing him. Uh, that um, he just decided to be nasty. I remember he was as nasty as um, at the airport when I went to pick him up. He insisted that I pick him up at the airport, and I went out there in a limo to pick him up. And then um, he then took the limo, and he said, you can get a taxi. So I went out there in the limo to pick him up, right? And then, but when he was being rude to me, the funny thing is, is this really pushy guy came over and said, you're Chuck Berry. And he said, I am. And he said, oh, he said, I love your music. And he said, can you sign my boarding pass? And Chuck Berry said, certainly, absolutely no problem. And where are you from? And are you visiting New Orleans uh, for long? And uh, what's your favorite Chuck Berry song? And he was, he was like going on like this with a stranger. Meanwhile, I'd come out there to, to get him, to, to photograph him. And he was just, he treated me very badly, you know. But I heard that from a lot of people. Um, there was another group called Shanana, and there was a group in Shanana called, there was a guy in it called Bowser, and he went on to produce a lot of concerts, and he was producing the Chuck Berry concert in New Orleans, and uh, and he, Chuck Berry with Bowser was, was atrocious. He was worse with even, with, with Bowser than he was with me, you know, so uh, it, was, it was a sad thing, because I wanted him to be great, and he is, he is great. He just wasn't great to me, you know.
0: Today at the Adobe Max conference, uh, you shared a story about Mick Jagger, and, and I hate to ask you to be redundant, but for those that are listening to this episode that might not have had the opportunity to hear it, would you share that story?
1: Sure. Uh, so I was doing this series for for Rolling Stone, and I was doing the heroes of, of rock and roll, and, and I did a, a, a whole ton of them, of. And Mick Jagger was one of them, and uh, in fact they ended up using one of my shots for the cover, and I had gone to Graceland and I photographed Elvis Presley's gold lammy suit, and uh, that's what they actually used for the cover, was Elvis's gold lammy suit, and it was called The Heroes of Rock and Roll. And it was their 25th anniversary issue, I think. It It was nice for me, I'd photographed Mick several times, so I knew him, and I went out there and I just had this idea of, of photographing him in the front of a corvette uh, where there's a leopard in the passenger seat and he's driving like he's he's the driver and he's driving a leopard around and it was just an, a, a surreal idea, a surreal kind of put together you know. So when we got the leopard there it turned out that the leopard was dangerous and so Mick was nervous with the leopard, and I was nervous too because I could tell that the leopard was ready was to pounce. Wild. It was wild, <laughs> wow. you know. Uh, it, it, the leopard was well behaved with the trainer, but the minute the trainer was 10 yards away, then he was not. So, what we had to do is in, invisibly, it's before Photoshop. Nowadays, in Photoshop, you shoot the leopard, shoot Mick Jagger, and put them together later. Uh, which would have been possible, but of course I liked the fact that it was real, you know. Anyway, so I said I'm going to build a little black partition between the leopard and Mick Jagger out of a piece of plexiglass that I cut down. And uh, while we were building all of this I got this idea and I said, why don't I do this double exposure portrait of you with the leopard? And he said, fine, because we were just waiting. And uh, I went ahead and I photographed the portrait of the leopard first, and I drew the eyes, the nose and the mouth and the ears of the, the leopard um, on the viewfinder of the camera. And then I shot the roll of film, rewound it and then fitted in and I was very careful with exposure because somebody said online uh, it's not a double exposure, that's impossible, and so on, because we don't see Jagger's ear. But I knew that if I did the exposure the right way, that part of the whole, the, and the way I lit Jagger, that part of it would fall away into black, and of course the black was replaced by the spots of the leopard. So of course it was a double exposure, so it works, because a lot of photographers said it's an impossible shot, you know. Uh, but I knew I knew how to do that. That's another technical, technical thing, You see yeah. where technical can creep in. And uh, so I went ahead, and did the leopard first, did the drawing, and then I fitted uh, Jagger in. And I actually had to move back a little bit to from the format of the leopard to make him a little bit smaller, so he would fit into the leopard's head, you know. And um, and I then did 12 frames of the leopard, then of course 12 frames of Jagger. And I thought, well, it's never going to work. And really, I was just playing for time, you know. And I took the roll of film, dropped it in the bag, and I almost thought it was a waste of time processing it, it was never going to work. And um, so, of course, it came out, and strangely enough, out of 12 frames, four of them were a perfect match. So it was always a, you know, kind of a miracle I that, think that, that, it, that it worked. Well. Uh, and uh, I kind of told that story today to let people know that I sometimes go on a lot about preparation but that shot wasn't prepared so sometimes preparation 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 and you okay you know you know Albert you go on about preparation preparation but you didn't prepare that shot no I didn't but but because in my head of all the preparation of what I wanted to do and possible a second or third shot that I wanted to do your brain is working at a speed that therefore when you turn to something spontaneous that you hadn't planned, your brain's working quick enough to pick up something that you you might be able to pull off, you know. Even though even though it's a long shot, and in the end it actually worked perfectly. And of course he loved that shot.
0: Well, it's and I it's one of the most iconic shots ever taken of him. But yeah, I, I I also think it. there's something really interesting about the notion of. Preparation and opportunity. You know, that's when I think luck happens. That's when something magic happens, when you've prepared enough and something happens.
1: You're lucky, but if you remember, I, I told the story of, of Alfred Hitchcock with the goose. Yes. and the Share magi- that again, because yeah, this the, way... So, uh, that that photograph of, of Hitchcock with the goose, initially the magazine, uh, the reason he's holding a goose is that he was a gourmet chef. Right. And he was going to give the recipe for his Christmas goose to the magazine. And if you look closely at that shot, you'll see that there's Christmas decorations around the goose's neck. So, uh, which I brought along with me, you know, and I I was doing the shot in July or something. It was hard to find Christmas decorations. Uh, But not in L.A. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so, I, I said to them, you know, if he's holding a plate with a cooked goose, which is what they wanted, I think that the cooked goose on a plate With him, with the bow tie, he's going to look like a waiter. And I said, that's not really the right mood. I said, it's not very Hitchcock. And I said, I'm sure he'll pull it off with his expression. He was good at that. He was like an actor. I said, but isn't it better, even in addition to the plate, that we have him with his hands around that goose's neck, like he strangled the goose, you know? And uh, I thought, well, they'll never go for that. And then I got a call back and the, the, from the art director who said, the editor-in-chief loves it, and you don't have to do the plate. So it meant I could spend more time on the goose shot. So that was a big relief, you know, that I didn't have to do, you know, plan A and plan B, I just had to do plan A. And uh, so I, I think... And I was a starting out photographer then. So starting
0: out, Al- Albert, that was your first.
1: That was the first famous person I yes, photographed. Yes, but that, so. that
0: was 1973. It yes, was Harper's correct. Bazaar. Ruth Ansell was the art director. That is
1: correct. And Bia Feitler. Yes, the two art directors. And Ruth was a person I was communicating with. And Ruth was a great art director. Yes, great. You know, really,
0: but but that you know that might make sense to some people. Well, of course, you know he could get his way. That was when he was famous. This
1: was before you were well known. How no, did they absolutely. even find
0: you? How did How did Ruth and um, NBF find I, you?
1: I think that they they just didn't want to fly a photographer out from New York, and then the West Coast editor said she knew of a photographer. She'd seen some work that I'd done for the L A Times color supplement. And um, she liked what I had done, and she called me up and she said, "Oh, I'm the West Coast editor of Harper's Bazaar, and I said, thank you very much. That was I thought it was just, that was it. But in fact, she recommended me for that job, and then Bea Feitler called me up, and that's where that came from, you know.
0: You have photographed way 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 more subjects than just celebrities uh you did a remarkable series on las vegas where Mm -hmm. you featured a professional dominatrix you shot her for three 14 hours straight Mm -hmm in a Budget Suites hotel. That is correct. And emerged with an incredible photo of a leg in a high heel atop a a stove. Yeah. And discussing that photo, you've said that you've been asked, did you plan to do that in the shoot? And your response was, no, I was in an environment that allowed it to happen. When you see something like that, you have to latch onto it right away. And was that something that happened? Did you know in the moment when you see something that that's what is right? Or do you ultimately discover that after when you
1: look at all the film? I think in a project like that you're not doing you know, you're not advertising a bottle of water you're not advertising a car nobody's saying make sure you see my Cartier watch, make sure that I see the earrings you're you're free falling in other words you don't you, I didn't have to shoot that shoe I, there, I had a bunch of shoes there, I said change the shoe put a boot on I you're you're in free fall of creativity. You can do anything. And when I was in that room, I'd planned in that room to do several shots. Now, did I plan, since I'm always speaking about planning and preparation, did I plan that shot? You know, and, and a lot of times uh, you get sometimes young photographers are saying, but how did you know how to put this foot on the stove? And uh, you know, sometimes questions like that I just cannot answer. I saw it and it came into my head. Maybe it was by that time that I would had been a photographer for 30 odd years, probably. that Before those 30 years I was trained as a conceptual thinking in graphic design, okay, maybe. I was trained as a film director. I came out on a director's ticket from film school. So therefore, you're involved in creative communication, which is what a director does essentially, or should be doing. So is that these things all came, kind of came together uh, at that moment. And therefore, I just saw it. So sometimes these things pop into my my head, and they're just fortunate. I don't know how or why they pop in, but I would imagine it's a cumulative knowledge. You know, I was speaking about uh, uh, earlier, about the Beatles, and when they arrived in 63, everybody said, wow, they're so good, these guys. How are they so good? Never heard of them before, and then suddenly in 1963, they were the Beatles. And then, when you see the anthology of the Beatles, you realize that you see a picture of them playing in in early 1959 and you go 59 60 61 62 and then in 63 it's four and a half years so you go what were they doing for four and a half years they were slogging away they were playing gig after gig after gig after gig so therefore sometimes when you get to the point they were obviously geniuses so there was no question at all about that so that of course plays into the whole mix it's one of the ingredients the magic dust you know that goes into the the making of that cake that was the Beatles. but uh the slog is part of it unfortunately well you, and you I,
0: started shooting bedpans right some of your also, early work I mean, was I, I,
1: I was doing hospital appliances i was doing i mean i did a. a, a I remember back back in, in England, just before I came to America, I actually got a job from a rental company that rented chairs for parties and, um, and they said we can deliver these chairs and, and tables and things for parties, tents. We can deliver them anywhere. And uh, so they booked a studio for me to shoot. I said, well, why are we doing it in a studio? Why don't, for example, there's a flat sand beach you know, a couple of hours from London why don't we take all the stuff down there and I'll shoot it on a beach since you, you deliver the stuff anywhere why not a beach and they all looked at each other the, the executive they said oh we love that idea that's great I said why don't we do it in a beach and maybe in a forest um, or next to a stream so I can do some landscape work but there's your chair and you'll drop it anywhere you know uh, because that was their main thing we'll, we'll, bring, we'll bring the chairs, the tables everything you need for a wedding or a party we'll bring it to you And uh, so uh, I I photographed all these things in a natural environment, you know. So even back then I was trying to conceptualize and trying to think about things and, uh, and, and, and put something together that was a little bit different. But I was using what I was trained to do as a graphic designer is to try and conceptualize,
0: you know. One of your most recent projects is the shooting of the 2019 Pirelli Calendar. Yes. Which you've described as one of the greatest commissions a photographer can get. Sure. The Pirelli calendar has always been more than just a series of beautiful photographs. It also provides a snapshot of contemporary society and times. And for this project, you sought to approach it in a different way than other photographers have, saying, quote, exploring the women with the sense of inquiry to create a situation important for
1: 2019. So can you tell us a little bit more about your take and the final product? Well, I mean, Pirelli Calendar was famous for kind of taking a bunch of models down at the beach and taking their tops off. Right. So that was Because it was essentially a pin-up calendar. And uh, it, it just, for me, in a present climate, seemed wrong to do that. And uh, in fact, the New York Times, when they interviewed me, they had the headline uh, and they basically said, Albert Watson treats women now as subjects, not objects. And, uh, which I thought was fair enough, and I thought, well, I was trying to do that. So I didn't feel the pressure of, say, the Me Too movement not to, uh, you know, a nude woman. Uh, but it was a difficult problem, because essentially, you know, men, the, the idea of the Pirelli calendar was kind of a mechanic in a garage calendar. And you pin up on the wall beautiful women, so they're pin-ups, you know. So uh, it... It was, it was hard for me, which I could have gone in that direction. I've certainly got enough work to prove that I could go in that direction. And I just came up with a different concept. And I wasn't... You know, the thing with the, mood, the Me Too movement, uh, which I think is a great movement. I think it's completely valid. But in, in fact, my way of dealing with women sometimes, if I wanted to photograph a woman nude, I just ask her. And if she says no, end of the discussion. There is no more discussion. I never, ever, ever ask a woman that twice. I never. I say, "Well, oh, can you think about it? Can you?" I just it, it simply leaves the the discussion. Uh, so uh, that that Me Too, which is is much more to do with harassment than anything else. It, it, it's not to do with with say the you know taking a photo of a nude woman, you know, and. I certainly have there's plenty of women that are very happy to be photographed nude by me. So it's not that I have to, to to worry about that. And as I said, I ask people, I said this is what I'm doing. Are you all right with that? And if you're not, I understand it, you know. Uh, and I never try and persuade them or do anything like that, you know. So uh, Talk about the concept for the so, Pirelli calendar. So the, the, the concept, uh, I, I came up with the idea, almost like they were movie stills. So I shot everything widescreen like what's called 16:9 format. And I basically had the four women play different characters. So I got Misty Copeland, who's a, a world-famous, amazing, outrageously amazing dancer, because I've seen her dance at Lincoln Center. You know, I cast her as a dancer. Okay, so that's fairly, you know, That's fairly obvious in a way. But I didn't want her to play herself. So uh, I gave her uh, basically a boyfriend with someone she knew and another dancer. And the scenario for them was two dancers living in Miami, because we shot it in Miami. And it was two dancers living in Miami. And they were trying to make it. And uh, he basically, we said, danced at a local hotel, you know, in a Cuban dance thing, which we kind of showed a little bit of. Um, but to make money meet, make, make ends meet, um, I had her dance in a strip club. And, uh, you know, of course, she was never, I was never going to have her strip, but I was going to have her, in, a, you know, pole dancing. So I just, I personally love the idea of Misty Copeland pole dancing when she's a classic, you know, ballerina ballerina you know and she actually loved the idea and like like anything you know there was some journalist said oh you, you forced her I said I didn't force anybody I said that you then you don't know Misty Copeland Misty Copeland she doesn't want to do something she's not going to do it that's the end of it she's a strong 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 person uh, so anyway it was a movie about her in Miami trying to make it as a dancer with dreams of going to maybe Paris to dance or Milan to dance or something like that you know and then um, we did uh, Letitia Castor, uh who used to be a model, but is now only doing movies. And uh, I cast her as a, an artist-painter. And uh, she has a studio also in Miami. And her boyfriend was Sergei Polinin, the, the Ukrainian dancer, who's an outrageous dancer. I mean, really ridiculous. I mean, he's kind of as good a dancer as Misty is, you know. And uh, I'm happy that we didn't use Sergei with Misty because it would have been too strong, you know. And we did use a strong dancer with Misty, but not as famous as, say, Sergei is. So Sergei and Letitia worked out beautifully, and they were living in this beat-up loft in Miami, and she was a painter. And I photographed them together. I did portraits. Uh, they kind of have a pet parrot. They live in, uh, in uh, part of the time, they live in an Airstream, just like the one we're in right now. And um, and was this a story that you constructed on your own? Oh, we just constructed it as yeah. a as an idea. Uh, so that was Letitia. So that was woman number two. Uh, then um, we did uh, Julia Garner from Ozark, and I always wanted to use her because I thought she was great in Ozark, the Netflix uh, series. And uh, I cast her uh, without a boyfriend. Uh, but totally dedicated to photography, and she wanted to become an art photographer who was a botanical photographer. She, she loved photographing plants. And she also did some nude photography, and it's actually the only nude, basically, almost in the whole calendar, that there's a shot of her in a tropical garden photographing another woman, um, and you know, who's posing for her. Uh, apart from that shot, the the other... And nine shots of of her, her uh, Julia Garner working and thinking about her work and so on. each each character has ten pages. So the calendar has forty pages in it. And uh, the final one that's that's Julia Garner playing the photographer. and uh, she's also dreaming. So the name of the calendar is really dreaming because everybody's trying to make it, trying to do something, trying to be successful, thinking about their future, and they're dreaming, you know. And uh, the final one was Gigi Hadid. And I, I, I didn't cast Gigi Hadid really as a, you know, as, as a character, but I saw her more like a Paris Hilton, who just happened to have inherited $300 million. So she did have concerns in her life, but it was more like, what event would she go to next? What charity ball would she go to? Where was the next boyfriend coming from? Et cetera, et cetera. So she was an heiress. So she played an heiress. And her best friend was the designer Alexander Wang. And he played kind of a confidant, almost her personal psychiatrist. And, and uh, was a close friend of hers. And we shot it all in the penthouse at the Carlisle Hotel in New York. So three of the women are in Miami and one was in New York, you know, with views of Central Park. And it's much darker in its look because it was New York wintertime sort of thing, you know, wintry days anyway. And uh, that was the four women. So each, as I said, of the four women get 10 pages. So it makes a 40-page calendar. And uh, the calendar comes with uh, a really beautiful matte black aluminum frame and, and you, as the months go by, or you divide the year into 40, that's how many we have. It's uh, not quite one for a week, but let's say a week and a quarter. And uh, each you, the way that it's set up within the box, it comes in a box because I didn't want to do a spiral. And um, you, you actually put the image in a frame. So it's much more like a gallery museum approach to the project. And you have a big
0: gallery show coming up in Toronto, I believe. In
1: Toronto, with all new work, nothing to do with Pirelli. Um, I have a show coming up on November the 8th at the Izzy Gallery in uh, Toronto. And I'm very excited about that because it's basically all new, unseen work. And and where did you take the
0: work? What, kind of, what is the, I had, the subject I, I of the work? I always had
1: in mind to do this project, after I finished the Vegas project, I had this this idea of doing a series of nudes with women... Uh, and I had gone to the island of Skye in Scotland for six weeks, and I I did a landscape project there with a full crew. So I was there for six weeks, and we shot 12 hours every single day, rain, shine, it didn't matter. And uh, we actually took the last afternoon off, and I took everybody out for dinner, you know. Um, And uh, I photographed some landscapes that I wanted to incorporate into the nude's. And uh, it was a real kind of Photoshop project with kind of massive layered files that were like 30 and 40 gigabyte files, you know, uh, that we built up. And uh, and because of the, the layering and the richness of the images, uh, the prints are beautiful. And since printing is such a, a huge part of of what I do, I was always When I first started photography, I was obsessed by printing in a darkroom. And uh, now with new printing technology, um, as I said, I'm working with Photoshop people. But the end product, the print, is very important to me. So I've always been an obsessive printer. We print everything in-house.
0: Albert, my last question is about a quote I read wherein you talked about your future. Discussing the craft of photography and aging, you said... I think it's different from, say, music, where you think of all the great songs that Paul McCartney is writing, and he hadn't written anything as good as that 1960s material. He hasn't written one song that's as good as yesterday. And they always say that mathematicians do their best work when they're in their 20s. Everything Einstein did after the age of 28 was just a variation of that period. But with photographers, you're relying sometimes on techniques that you've learned, and then later on in life, you're using those techniques to make pictures. And that's what transforms them sometimes. That's what makes them richer, because you have that experience. That's a thrilling prospect of what you have in store for us. I'm assuming that you will never retire.
1: No, you never, you know, photographers are lucky or unlucky because people always say, "Will you ever retire? And of course, you just don't retire. You just, what's happening next Monday? What's happening next Friday? Um, When's the next project up? Okay, we have exhibitions coming up in uh, Venice, and then we have an exhibition coming up uh, in Kyoto in Japan. Um, uh, Earlier this year, uh, we were in the largest contemporary photography museum in China. We had a big show there. Uh, and we went to China for that so you just keep on trucking along I mean photographers just keep on trucking and I think that uh, you like to fantasize that a photographer is like a wine that the longer you leave it in the bottle in the cool cellar it gets better you know um, so uh, it doesn't mean to say that you know maybe a picture I did 40 years ago uh, is, is not as good as I do now um, because it I think some of the work I did back then in the 80s, um, I, I still like it. I don't look back and say, that's awful. Uh, uh, but uh, I like the new work particularly. And uh, I'm glad I did the old work, but I'm glad I'm not doing that work now. So you always, you always. I mean, I'm afraid the, the analogy with going up a ladder is always that, uh, on, onwards and upwards, you know, you always want to get up that ladder to the next run and see what you can do, you know.
0: Well, it's lucky for us that you have yet to peak. Yeah,
1: I'm doing my best.
0: Thank you, Albert. Albert Watson, thank you so much for joining me today for this very special live episode of Design Matters here at the Adobe Max Conference in Los Angeles, California. Yeah, Adobe. (laughs) This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
2: For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie slash millman. That's d.rip slash debbie slash Dash Milman. And if you really like this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Adobe XD and Wix.com.